You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. And so we're going to read this. Uh, we're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter, which is verse 25 of John chapter 2. Uh, but let me actually, let me say this before we read this, just to make sure you kind of understand the setting and where we are. This is very early on. I mean, like probably within a couple weeks of when Jesus started doing his public ministry as an adult. Uh, that he had started to accumulate a small group of disciples around him. Uh, but even a couple weeks ago, he's walking by crowds, and it seems like people don't even know who he is uh, where, when John the Baptist is ministering. Uh, so he's still relatively unknown at this point in his life. Uh, even though he is God in the flesh, he's still relatively unknown. He's been uh, largely anonymous, it seems. But last week, uh, we saw at the start of chapter 2, uh, Dr. Matt Harmon preached a wonderful sermon for us about how Jesus had done his first miracle. He had turned water into wine at this wedding feast, which is this glorious thing. But even that was done in this smaller town of Cana uh, and a, a, at a wedding that was sort of a private ceremony. And, so, and even that was done sort of incognito, like behind the scenes. And some people started to connect the dots. But Jesus really hasn't had a time yet where he's really come out into the public and like been very prominent. But this, what we read today, is going to be just that. And even though uh, Jesus has been in his first miracle, that water to wine has been kind and generous and giving and people are probably grateful he did that when he comes here it's not to be kind and compassionate and generous when we read what happens next it may surprise you to see and hear that jesus did these things Uh, but it's true nonetheless and so follow along with me verse 13 to 25 we'll read the whole thing then we'll back up make sure we understand what took place and then i trust see its relevance us today. So John 2, start at verse 13. John records this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume you. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Then it concludes this way. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's much that we can see in this, and I hope that we do see in this. Uh, I feel like we're just going to scratch the surface of this, but I want to say up front what what my main uh, point is this morning that I see from this text that I want to convey to myself and to us is this, is to listen to the Lord's correction. Listen to the Lord's correction, even in the, quote-unquote, religious domains of your life. 
listen to the Lord's correction even in the religious or you may say spiritual domains of your life. And I, I trust that we'll see uh, where I, I get that from this text and what relevance that has for us. But I, as I lead towards application, I want to first make sure we understand what even happened here and why it's a big deal and what Jesus is doing and why it bothered people so much before we see it just jump to relevance for us. And I want to summarize the story sort of with two statements. The first one that you see in verses 13 to 17 would be this, is that Jesus purifies the temple. Uh, Jesus purifies the temple. You see that in verses 13 to 17. And just so we understand, there's a couple key words in verses 13 and 14 that make sure that help us know the setting of this story, what's even taking place, when it was, what's going on. Uh, and you see a couple words in verse 13 and 14. You see the words Passover, right? You see the words uh, temple, and you see Jerusalem. So Passover, Jerusalem, and temple. You see those three words. And those uh, help us to understand where this is, what's taking place. This was uh, during the time of Passover. And if time would allow, I'd tell you all about that. But just suffice it to say, this was a massively important holiday for the Jewish people. And still is even to this day. It was an annual holiday that they had developed into a feast and a, a celebration of sorts. Where they remembered how God had rescued them long, long ago as a people from slavery in Egypt. How he had rescued them through the leadership of Moses and these miracles that were performed. God had rescued them and he had passed over them this one night and had brought death to the firstborns of the Egyptians, but did not um, bring death to their sons if they had blood over their door. And so they, they, it was this miraculous thing where God had showed mercy and grace to his people. And so they had this annual holiday where they would remember that, even based on how they would eat and certain sacrifices that they would make uh, during that time of year and on a particular day. Even. And so this was like a magnet to the city of Jerusalem uh, whenever Passover would happen. Each year when it would come around, tons of people would come to Jerusalem like Jesus did here. It says he went up to Jerusalem, and so did a bunch of other people. Uh, they would go there to congregate with as many of God's people as they could to remember and to celebrate what God had done long ago. Jerusalem was their capital city. It was back when they had had kings who would rule over them as God's people, which they didn't at this point. That was the city kings would rule from. It was the, the hub of really life uh, for the Jewish people. And so it was a magnet, especially at Passover. This scene that we read about this morning, there would have been tons of people around. This isn't like done, Jesus doing it, kind of like bearing the story when nobody's around. Like he did it on purpose at Passover so many people could see it. And it happened in the temple, verse 14 says. The temple, was, you may know a lot about it, you might know nothing, but it was a very, very, very important and special and unique building that was in Jerusalem that God had told his people to build long ago, back in the days of Kings David and Solomon. Uh, they had constructed this temple and it went through a few waves. It got destroyed and rebuilt and whatnot. But it, God had told them to build this building. And it was far more than just some church building like we think of now. It was a place that in the interior of it, there was this most holy place where God took up residence. Where he had come down in this cloud and he took up residence there. And it was walled off and curtained off from the rest of the building and even from the rest of the city. But God was in that place. 
And the temple was the place where they would make sacrifices out front of it, where it would be a reminder to them of their sin and brokenness, but also of God's kindness and still being among them and his willingness to show mercy and grace to them. And so this is where this story takes place. And Jesus comes up to Jerusalem. He comes to the temple. uh, And what does he see there? Verse uh, 14 says that he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And then he saw money changers sitting there. So what it seems like it's taking place is that, uh, think about this for just a minute. Of these people were coming in droves to the city of Jerusalem. And they were sacrifices that they were told to make or that they wanted to make of animals or of birds. Things God had told them to do. And they're seeking in some way to honor him and to do those things. But they're coming from far away, right? And they didn't have planes they could get on or whatnot. They're walking long distances, traveling long distances. But they still want to be able to offer certain sacrifices, right? And so rather than carrying, you don't carry them, but uh, pulling an oxen or or carrying a a cage of pigeons or whatever, the whole route, uh, they came to the temple with money. They would bring money with them, and they would seek out uh, these people that were there in the temple and in the courtyard of the temple, and they would find an oxen and exchange money uh, for that oxen so they could take it to a priest to sacrifice. Or if they were doing a sacrifice of pigeons or, or of sheep, they would find someone with that particular animal, and they would exchange money uh, for that animal to be able to take it to be sacrificed. And so these people are seeking to provide that service for them. Uh, We don't know all their motives. Uh, It seems like they don't have great motives based on Jesus' response. Uh, But uh, there was money changers there as well. And all that was was that there was people coming from all over, right? And they have all sorts of different systems of money uh, that they use from their different towns and their different locations. And when they come uh, to Jerusalem, there was this temple tax that they were supposed to pay, for example, uh, every year. And it was a temple coin that they were supposed to get to be able to pay that tax. So they needed to get one of those coins. And so there would be people who had those coins and would take money from different locations and say, okay, you give me such and such of whatever your currency is, and I'll give you your temple coin. And so that's what was taking place. Jesus sees this, these people uh, selling things, trading money, things like that. And he comes in, and he's appalled by it. Jesus does not, I will note this, he doesn't just, whatever word you want to use, blow up or go off on people, or go ballistic, whatever uh, term you want to use on people. He is deliberate. He's intentional about what he does. Did you know it says, I don't even know how you do this. Maybe some of you could teach me, but verse 15 says he makes a whip of cords. Okay, That's not like just something he found laying there and like, oh, I'm mad. I'm going to pick that up and just start. Like He's deliberate about making this whip of cords, and he drives them all out of the temple. All the animals, all the money changers, all the people who are selling things. And he flips over their tables. He takes their money in whatever containers that they had and just dumps them all over the place. Like Jesus is trying to provoke these people. He is trying to show them this is not okay what you guys are doing. He is upset. He has this zeal you see in verse 17 that his disciples had read about back in Psalm 69. That was that was this zeal that was going to be in the Messiah whenever he finally came for the temple, for the house of God. There was going to be zeal in this Messiah, this rescuer who would come. And you see that demonstrated here. 
that Jesus, he says in verse 16, take these things away, do not make, and then listen to what he calls the temple. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. People didn't, back then did not just call God their father like we do today. This would have been a big deal. And he's saying, this is my father's house. He told you, us to build this long ago. He dwells in it. Do you realize, like, from here to that back wall, not far from us, is God the father, like his dwelling place? And you guys are coming in here and not giving a care. Like, you come out of convenience. Like, you're wanting to do, kind of do the right things, but you have no reverence for my Father. You have no brokenness over the sin that these sacrifices are supposed to remind you of. Like, you're just coming in, know you need to make a sacrifice, find somebody with the right kind of animal, give them some money, take them to the priest, get on to your next thing. And he sees that it's just become this, like, bustling marketplace, like, where people just come do their transactions, and then leave. And it's not a place of worship and of reverence, sobriety and brokenness. And Jesus is disgusted by it. Like, he's frustrated by it. Like, do you guys realize what you're doing? Like, do you realize where you are? And, like, who has told you to build this place? And he's angry. Like, he's frustrated by it. And so he flips these tables and dumps out these coins, and he, he wants them to know that his father's house will be respected. Like, they, they will pay attention and live in pure ways. And so he seeks to cleanse the temple or purify the temple to drive out these practices that seem okay on the surface of people wanting to, to do the right religious things, but who are doing it with hearts that lack reverence, that lack regard for the Lord, that lack seriousness and, and any sort of, like, respect for the Lord. He's, he's driving them out, saying, you have no place here if you're not coming in brokenness and in repentance and faith. And so he cleanses the temple, and this upsets people, like understandably so, right? This bothers people. They are they're appalled by Jesus doing this. This is a carpenter from Nazareth who has been unknown up to this point largely, and he's coming in, flipping stuff over in their busiest time of year, making a scene saying, get out of here, as if he has authority over the temple, this place where God dwells. And understandably, in verse 18, they start to ask him why. Like, who are you to come in here at Passover, nonetheless, and to do these things and tell us how we need to have the temple be purified and, and made better and how we have bad motives in what we're doing. And so the second statement, I said the first one was that uh, Jesus purifies the temple. I think what you see follow up from this question now that they're asking is that this is fascinating, that Jesus replaces the temple. Jesus replaces the temple. And this is amazing. It's kind of cryptic what Jesus says, but uh, they ask him, verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And that's a good question, right? Like, I honestly, if that was me on there, like, I would be asking him, Jesus said, like, what are you, like, can you give me some sort of validation that you are supposed to be doing these things? Like, uh, that this is not just something everybody does. And God even had given his messengers signs at some points, right? Like if you read back in the Exodus, this thing they're celebrating at Passover, God had given Moses signs to perform for Pharaoh back when he was telling him to let them go. God had given other people signs over time to validate, to verify who they are, to like give proof of who they are. And even Jesus himself had already started giving signs, right? And what we looked at last week, I mean, look back up at verse 11. When Jesus had turned water into wine, it said that this, the first of his signs, 
Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. So Jesus isn't opposed to like actually doing a sign to show, look, listen to me. Like nobody else can just do this stuff. God has sent me, listen to me. Here's a sign to show you that you should listen to me. We'll see several of them come through the Gospel of John, these signs that Jesus does. So he's not necessarily opposed to, to giving a sign. But when these people ask for a sign, he kind of answers in a weird way. Maybe we're so used to it. We've maybe read it sometimes before. It doesn't seem unusual to us. But they ask him for a sign to like prove himself and like, why should we listen to you right now? And what Jesus says in verse 19 is, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And so naturally, if I was standing in that courtyard hearing that, I would think, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And that's why they respond. They say, this building? Like, it's taken four, it took 46 years to construct this thing. And you're going to have some, you want us to tear it down so you can build it up in a couple days? And like, that's going to be your proof for us that we should listen to you? That would have been the natural question in their mind. And that's what they ask in verse 20 and so I'm not like a build I don't know how to build anything but I know it takes more than three days to build buildings okay like when I saw them building Lincoln Elementary School down the road for me it took like nine months or a year when I see them building Moe's Southwest Grill in front of Meyer, which I'm super excited about uh, we still have to wait a couple months for that to be open I think like it takes time to build buildings so when these people here in the ancient world destroy this ornate beautiful thing and I'm going to build it back up in three days they're thinking yeah right like and a we're not going to let you destroy it. nobody's going to destroy this temple it is a special place and you, there's no way you could do it uh rebuild it in three days even if you are a carpenter Jesus and like they 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 are confused and I think Jesus wanted them to be confused but John the disciple the one who wrote this wants us to realize what Jesus was actually talking about like he he wants us to based on what we know of what happens after this John wants us to read this story the right way and he tells us what Jesus meant in verse 21 it says that he was speaking about the temple of his body and when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus, it's all, I doubt that he pointed to himself, but internally I think he would have been, as he said, destroy this temple. He's talking about himself and his body as the temple of God. The temple was where God lived with his people, right? It was where God had taken up residence in a building for generations upon generations. And now Jesus, he's not being real direct about it, but he's saying he is the temple now. Like He has feet and hands and hair and teeth and eyes and all these things, but he is the temple of God now. He is the place that God has come into the world and taken up residence. And he says, destroy this temple talking about himself and in three days I'll raise it up and John tells us he's talking about the, his death and his resurrection that a couple Passovers after this Jesus is going to come back to Jerusalem and he's going to do a very similar event to this again and some other things and people are going to start to hate him even to the point of wanting to put him to death wanting to destroy him and they do they put him to death outside the city on a cross and they destroy the temple of God just like Jesus said that they would. But 
I don't know the mystery of how it works. Jesus himself raising himself up of God the Father, the Spirit. You see all those things, all those uh, members of the Trinity talked about in being involved in the resurrection of Jesus. But his body, this temple of Jesus that was destroyed on the cross, is laid in the tomb and on the third day is raised up to never be destroyed again. Like God breathes life back into his body and gives strength back to his muscles and gives him his voice back and his lungs start to breathe again. And he, the temple of God, is raised up to never be destroyed again. And this temple that he talked to people inside this building, it did get destroyed and hasn't been rebuilt. But when Jesus' body was raised from the dead, he, it will never be destroyed again. It's still alive and well. And Jesus says, if you want reason to know why I have authority to challenge you, why I, just a carpenter from Nazareth, have authority to challenge you and even correct you and seek to bring about change in your life. It's not because I'm just some good teacher. It's because I'm going to be crushed on the cross and I'm going to be raised from the dead. And that is a sign that you cannot surpass. And when I'm risen from the dead, like I have authority over everyone on this planet, these people in this temple in AD 30 or whatever, and the people in this room in 2017. Like he, as the one who's been raised up to never be destroyed again, has authority over you. And like he has the right to correct you. Like he has the right to confront you, the right to challenge you. And he says that in this text. They're asking him for a sign. Why do you do this? Why are you trying to purify us? Why are you trying to change us? Who are you? And he points to his death and resurrection as grounds for why he can. And I would point you to his death and his resurrection as well. And if you've never had a willingness to hear him, if you've never had a willingness to consider his challenge upon your life, I would urge you to change that today. Because there is a sign that has been done that is proof to you and evidence that you ought to listen to his correction. That you ought to, to humbly receive correction from him and, and learn to listen to him when he calls you to change. And so Jesus cleanses the temple. He replaces the temple. But I want to think for a few minutes with you about what bearing this has on us. Because we live almost 2,000 years later. We don't have a temple. We're not living in Jerusalem. We're not offering sacrifices. We're not paying temple taxes and all these things. Uh, but what relevance does this passage have on us? And I think the last few verses, 23, 24, 25, can give us some hints about some important things as, as this text has relevance on us. But I would summarize it this way. My last point is that not just that Jesus cleanses the temple and replaces the temple, but that Jesus reforms his people. Jesus reforms his people. He corrects his people. Uh, if you read this text, this story that we read today, real simplistically, uh, you may be tempted to think of certain ways that you should apply it today. Okay, like when, I'll, I'll admit one. When I was a kid, and maybe some of you thought this, I don't know. But I grew up in the church, and I had heard some of these stories before about Jesus, like flipping over tables and saying, don't make uh, my father's house a house of trade. And I thought our church building was like the house of God, like that God lives there, which he, he does not. He lives in us as his people, right? And in that sense, he's here right now. But anyways, I, I, when I would have like fundraiser things from my school, like selling popcorn tins or whatever, like I would be so nervous, I kid you not, like to go around our church and like say, 
like I would almost try to be secretive about like, do you want to buy like popcorn to, for our fundraiser? Because I was like, I don't want to turn uh, the house of God into a house of trade. Like somebody's going to find me out. Uh, so you may read th- this text and think stuff like that. Like do not sell things in here. Like go out after the service to our resource center and just slam all the books off the shelf and things like that. Like how dare you sell things in our church building? Uh, we may, or you may come to our garage sale fundraiser we do in the spring where we have tables and tables of chairs and we have money boxes where people donate money and you may come and you may mark your date on the calendar for that and come in and like flip over the clothes tables and shoe tables and take their money boxes and throw them on the ground. That is not at all, I think, what we ought to take away from this because we live in a different era. But we do see, I think what this text would want to, Jesus would want to point us to is the reform that needs to take place in our hearts. Because it was that it wasn't just the actions of these people in the temple that Jesus was frustrated by. Like he wanted them to be making sacrifices. Like God had told them to be doing those things. But it was the manner in which they were doing it, the heartlessness, the like coldness, the I just come for convenience and like for ease and simplicity. I have no regard for God. That is what Jesus was wanting to point at them and say, that must change. Like keep doing these things. I mean, ultimately when he makes his sacrifice for sin, he doesn't want them to keep doing these things. But then and there, he just wanted to address their heart, their, their heartlessness, their, their lack of love and reverence and awe before God. Because they were doing all the right things, but they were not doing it uh, for proper motivation. And so we need, from this text, I think, in this story, and even the last few verses of the story, to realize that we need reform ourselves. You need to be reformed. You need to have Jesus correct you at times. I need to have Jesus correct me at times. Did you notice how John ends this little story? It says that many people started trusting in Jesus in verse 23. But in verse 24, it says Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That's the same word just in a verse. It says Jesus, when he looked back out at those people, he did not trust them. Like he, and it, he says, because he knew all people and didn't need anyone to bear witness about man, because he himself knew what was in man. When Jesus looks at you, when he looks at me, he sees sinful people. He sees people who, are, who lack reverence and love and awe and, and wonder before him. He sees people who, he knows what is in us. He knows that we are sinners. He knows that we even have a tendency to be blinded by our own sin, to not really see sin in ourselves. Just like these people were coming to that temple thinking, they're assuming the best of themselves. Like, man, I traveled so far to come bring a, a sacrifice. Like, surely that's a good thing that, that God is honored by. That we have, they have this blindness to what was going on in their hearts, this lack of love and reverence and, and brokenness that should have been in their hearts. And we sometimes are similar, that we, we do not typically see sin in ourselves, especially in the religious domain, our, our religious and spiritual actions. We tend to just assume the best of ourselves and think, man, I'm doing everything well. Uh, when it comes to religious things. I'm, I'm, whatever you think of as the, the biblical priorities of a Christian, you think, man, I'm coming to church. Like, I'm, I'm giving money when I can. Like, I'm, I'm trying to read my Bible. Like, I'm sitting through prayers. I'm, I'm, words are coming out of my mouth when we sing. And, like, you, do, you go through the religious motions, but there is no heart in what you're doing. 
There's no love. There's no regard for the Lord. It's just this cold, mechanical process of going through the things that you think God has called you to do. We need to know that the Lord wants to reform our hearts and and call us to have this proper motivation, even in the, the religious domain of our life. And we need to have confidence that he can change us. That he wants to change us. Uh, Change comes because Jesus, he didn't entrust himself to man, but that didn't mean he gave up on us. A couple years after this, the same hand that flipped these tables over and that threw these coin boxes down and that pointed people out of the temple, those same hands were stretched out on a cross outside the city for those same sins that he was confronting. And Jesus laid down his life to suffer the judgment for those sins. And he's been raised back up from the dead and says, come to me. Like, I want to change you. I want to help you. I want to put love in your heart. Like, I want you to have this change come about in you. And I can do it. Just come to me. Learn from me. I want to teach you. I want to help you. And he can change us. Even the coldest of hearts, he can change. And he doesn't just confront us coldly. He doesn't just point out areas of needed growth in our life coldly and condemningly, but he does it out of love and out of compassion to us. Like he, he does it, he corrects us as children. Uh, you read the book of Hebrews chapter 12, for example, and it is very evident that God disciplines his children. God corrects his children, right? Like when we're brought into the family of God, it's not as if now I just never have him correct me. I never have him challenge me and say, look, your heart is in the wrong place. It needs to change. No, God confronts those he loves. Like God calls out sin in us because he loves us and he's heartbroken over our sin and wants us to live in a way that brings us joy, that brings him delight. Like he convicts, he challenges us and corrects us, confronts us out of love. I want to share just a couple quick points of application of how we ought to be motivated by love when it comes to our religious practices, our spiritual practices, and how we often lack that. We go through the motions just like these people in the temple did, but we have no real heart and love and passion for the Lord behind even our religious and spiritual practices. And I think the Lord would want to point out some of those things to us and even to me today. One is our singing. Oftentimes when we gather together as God's people and we come together to worship, we know we're supposed to sing. Like we, So maybe we move our mouth but don't actually have words come out. Or maybe we actually do push air through our vocal cords and make words come out to go along with everyone else. But often we sing without affection like we sing like a robot like when we're singing about our savior like we we sing heartless and passionless when we're talking about the son of god who came and died for us and has been risen from the dead for us and christ would say don't just sing like sing with passion sing with affection and gratefulness in your heart psalm 13 6 says i will sing to the lord not period i will sing to the lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Like that's how we should sing. It's not just going through this religious practice, but sing from a heart that knows God has dealt bountifully with me. Think about how you listen to the word of God when it's read or when it's preached, when it's taught to you. Do you listen to it attentively? 
Like, or do you just come and sit through a Sunday morning sermon and hope that it's short and hope that there's some jokes laced into it? Or do you come and listen to the word of God wanting to learn and wanting to hear and wanting to be reminded of truth and wanting your heart to be stirred up? Or do you just go through the motions of sitting through sermons and just letting them fly over your head? 1 Peter 4, 11 talks about the one who speaks, like which in today's context would be me. It says, whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. That is a, a sobering thing that when we come together and have the word of God preached to us, it's not just some talk that, that you can choose to listen to or not. Like whoever we have preached here and whatever church you're part of is speaking the word of God and you ought to listen to it and not just sit through sermons coldly and callously because that's what Christians do. And I want to make sure that I'm there. When you pray, think about when you pray. Like do you pray thoughtfully? Like do you even pay attention when we pray. We are speaking to God. Like we are addressing him and have no right to on our own, but we get the privilege of speaking with God. And often we just sit through prayers with our eyes closed and hope that they say amen soon. And like we are not praying with, with reverence. We're not praying with like passion or even thought in our minds at times. And Jesus would want to say, don't just pray. Like pray with regard for the one you're speaking to. Pray with seriousness. Pray with attentiveness. Jesus said, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, uh, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Like we're not just to spew words out of our mouth, but we're to address the Lord in prayer. Think about your giving. When offering plates come by or if you put your gift in the box at the back, uh, when you give gifts or offerings to our church, do you just do that because it's what Christians are supposed to do? It's just like these people came to the temple and did sacrifices because that's what they were supposed to do. Like, is giving to the church any different for you than it is to pay your monthly renewal at the YMCA? Or any different from you than for you than it is from paying your cable bill or paying rent or or paying your student loans things like that when we give gifts like we are giving of our financial resources to advance the good news of christ and to care for people it's not just paying for a service as if i come in and exchange money here because they do these things for me and i get to hear certain things but it's an investment in the kingdom of god that we are called to do cheerfully in second corinthians 9 like it's not just the act of giving that god cares about but giving out of love as we're talking about in this series now, the last thing I want to mention is our serving in church. Our, our, as we come together as God's people and we serve, whether it's in a class or just in our life group or in, uh, using musical gifts or teaching gifts or hospitality gifts, whatever it is, as we serve one another and go about that, quote-unquote, religious practice, are we serving just because it's the right thing to do or are we serving to show love to others? Are we serving out of selflessness and saying, I want to benefit my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to benefit the world around me. Are we helping in kids' ministry just because we said we need people to help in kids' ministry? Are we bringing snacks to life group just because somebody asked me to bring snacks to life group? Or I'm opening up my home just because uh, my life group leader asked me to do that? Or am I, whatever, fill in the blank. Am I, do, am I serving God's people out of love for them and gratefulness for them and investment in them? Or am I just doing it because I've been told to? Am I just doing it because it's what Christians are supposed to do? 
Those are just a few examples, and it's not as if we can isolate off religious experiences as the only area we need to be lovingly confronted about our motives. But in those areas, I think we do need to. We need to listen to the Lord as he corrects, as he points out some of the wrong motivations in our heart and just going through the motions. He wants our hearts to be changed, and he corrects us out of love. He corrects us with the desire to see us change and power behind his correction to actually change us if we will listen and if we will heed him. And that's what, what I believe he wants us to do. So I'm going to